0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Al. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the elders at Gateway, and I've got the, the privilege of heading up the site here. It's great to be together. Can I just, before we get stuck into the text this morning and the Bible passage I'm going to read, can I just want to, to say thank you so much for your act of generosity this morning and for responding faithfully to to God with the giving of your finances. I recognise that you know every time it's like God, we're giving you view again. I just want to say thank you, Gateway, for all you give financially, I genuinely mean that. It's a privilege to be part of a people that are generous and give out the overflow of what God has done. And I know that this money, this will bless the people that it's going to. This is going to bless and feed hungry mouths. It's going to bless the work that we're involved in in the nation. So I just want to say thank you so much um, for excelling in the gift of Gift, gift of giving this morning. And I, I do genuinely, it's a privilege to see people just wandering down this aisle and say, This is an act of worship as we come to the front and we say, God, you're Lord of my whole life, including over my finances as well. So thank you so much um, for that. So, most of you, um, many of you will know that we've been going through um, the Old Testament book of Daniel, um, and we're very much continuing that for the next couple of weeks. We're kind of, we're, we're into the landing chapters of Daniel now. And we're looking this morning at Daniel chapter 9, which is Daniel's great prayer for his people. And chapter 9, you remember that chapters 1 to 7, very much Daniel is living in the seen world, the known world. And as we turn to chapter 8... And on through the rest of Daniel, he's getting these visions of the unseen creation, the unseen world. And Daniel chapter 9, whilst he's praying for his people, he gets this vision of something that's going to happen through the events of world history. And what these visions do is they give us an insight into what's really going on in the events of world history. What's really going on as God is establishing his kingdom and his reign and rule over the whole earth, as his dominion is being extended through the whole earth. And Daniel chapter 9 is... It's an incredibly rich passage of Scripture, and what we're going to really focus on today is the prayer that Daniel prays and what it shows us about how we're to come to God and how we're to to approach him in prayer, but I would just love to encourage you, go and read and meditate on this passage of Scripture over this week. Daniel chapter 9 is incredibly rich, and we'll only get through a snippet of it this morning. There is so much in there to meditate on, to come before God and say, Lord, would you reveal more of yourself through this passage of Scripture. We could spend weeks unpacking this Scripture. We're going to spend 30 minutes right now, and then we're going to pray together. We're going to pray for one another. So just before I, start, I read a bit of the text, I just want to give a bit of context about what's happening um, in right now. So verse 1 of Daniel chapter 9 says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, the of Mead, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I Daniel perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. So, what's happened is the. God's people, the Israelites, were in the promised land. And God says, if you carry on rebelling and disobeying me, you'll be taken into exile by the Babylonians. And surely enough, that's what happens. They get taken into exile. And the prophet Jeremiah prophesies there's going to be 70 years they're going to be in exile. 70 years they're going to be in captivity. And Daniel knows that what's happening here is that the end of the 70 years is nigh. That exile is about to come to an end. He knows the times he's living in. He understands what's happening. He says, hey, this 70 years is nearly up. He knows that, therefore, the promise of God about the restoration of his people is surely going to come to pass soon. He's living with a sense of, "Ah, the exile's ended, and surely now we're about to be restored as God's people. Surely now we're going to return to Jerusalem. The city will be rebuilt. The temple worship will be re-established. And as he realizes this, what it causes Daniel to do, it says in verse 3, is then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Daniel, knowing the times he's living in, understanding what's going on, it causes him to pray. That's his default position. You read through the book of Daniel, that is always his default position. He turns to God and he prays. He's found in his room praying. He understands the time he's living in, and he gets on his knees before God to plead for his people. But what most concerns Daniel isn't the return to the land per se itself. What he's more worried about is the state of the hearts of the people that are going to return. He, he says in verse 13, despite 70 years in exile, we've not learned. We've not obeyed. We've not, we've not repented. What's most concerning for Daniel is that the people of God's heart hasn't changed. The people's heart aren't really repentant. And God always looks at our heart, Gateway. He's always interested in what's going on in our hearts, not just the externalities, not just what's happening around us. But actually, he looks at our heart and he says, what's in your heart? And Daniel is so concerned about the the hearts of his people. He's not so much worried about returning to the land. He's worried about a people that are going to return. What good will it be to have a people back in the land who haven't changed their hearts toward him? As we're seeking the kingdom of God in our day, what good will it be if our hearts aren't on fire for Jesus? If we haven't repented toward him, if we haven't gone to him and said, Jesus, you're my Lord and Saviour, and you're my all in all. That's where it starts. It starts with the people that have been won over by Jesus. Their heart is burning for him. And Daniel isn't kind of going to go restore Jerusalem for the sake of it. He's like, God, we haven't repented. We haven't turned away, and I'm going to come before you, and I'm going to plead with you that you'll keep your covenant promise, even though we haven't turned around. And Daniel, as he's praying, as we'll see through the passage, angel Gabriel, who we met in, in chapter 7 and chapter 8, answers Daniel's prayer immediately. But what he does is he says, Daniel, you're praying for this, but I'm going to show you a series of events that are about to take place in world history, which are far bigger and more complex and longer in duration than just the scope of your prayer, which is about the restoration of Jerusalem. He sh- he, the angel Gabriel gives him an insight into what's going to happen through the remainder of world history. And what angel Gabriel is doing is he's letting Daniel into God's redemptive plan, into God's plan to redeem his people once and for all time, for all eternity. Daniel's sitting there and he's praying for his people and he's praying for Jerusalem. And the angel Gabriel does this. I want to tell you it's much bigger and wider than this. I want to tell you really what's going on in world history. I want to cast your mind to what's really going to happen as I'm going to redeem my people once and for all time. I'm going to show you how my reign and rule will be established through the whole earth. So let me just pray, and then we're going to pick up the text in verse 16. So, Heavenly Father, I want to just pray that you would come and speak to us this morning as I bring this, Lord. Lord, I ask that you would encourage us and equip us and change us, Lord. We don't just want to be hearers of the word. We want to be hearers and doers. As we hear, Lord, we want to have hearts that are open to being changed by you. Lord, we, want to, we don't want to be like the people of Israel, whose hearts were still stubborn after 70 years. Lord, we want to have soft hearts towards you. Lord, take out any hearts of stone and replace it with hearts of flesh, I pray. Lord, for your glory and for your kingdom, we pray. Amen. So we're going to pick up the story in verse 16, which is about halfway through Daniel's prayer. Hopefully it'll come up on the screen as well. I'm reading from the NIV version, so if you have a slightly different version of your Bibles, that's why. It says this, Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away from your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. That's That's the temple. It's desolate. It's been destroyed. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. A better translation there of mercy is actually mercies. It's plural. God's mercy is not a one-off event. His mercies go on and on and on And on and other bits of this passage, it talks about the righteousness of God. It's actually his righteousnesses. It's plural. It goes on and on. And his compassions, his compassion is plural. It keeps on going and keeps on going. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. What's interesting here is that Daniel is crying out, for your sake, God, What is the primary petition of his prayer is the glory and the reputation of God, Yahweh. He's most concerned that a driving force of his prayer is the glory of God. And that should be a driving force of our prayers. As we come to God and pray, a driving force of our prayers should be the glory of God. It should should be first and foremost in our minds that we're praying, God, for your glory. What is it Jesus taught us how to pray? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. We're saying, God, your kingdom, your glory, your majesty. And that should be a driving force of our prayer. For your sake, oh God, act. It's not just about Daniel and his people. He's saying, God, for your sake, for your glory, and for your kingdom, please act. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the early vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have come now to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out. And we'll come back to this a bit later. Which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. And now we're about to enter this vision that he has, which on first glance is very complicated. It says this, 77s. Are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. No and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. If you're getting confused right now, that's absolutely fine. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven In the middle of seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. If anyone's confused, that's fine. When I read this at the beginning of the week, I thought, God, how am I going to preach on this? (laughs) Verse 22 says this. Verse 26 says this. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. When we read visions in Scripture, there has to be a considering and a a studying and a a thinking about it. Sometimes things are very complex. And also, there's a reality. Sometimes this side of eternity, we will not understand everything. Some things of God God and his purposes and his presence will remain a bit of a mystery this side of eternity. But also, we're to do some some digging and some understanding. What is going on here? What are 77s? What's happening here? Can we leave verse 24 to 27 up, Kevin? Is that all right? So really, I want to focus on the bit around Daniel's prayer. But to understand Daniel's prayer, we need to understand these 77s. What on earth is going on here? What is being described here is a series of events taking place over three distinct time horizons. The first seven sevens, the 62 sevens, and then the one seven. That will occur before the final restoration and fulfillment of God's kingdom, and he'll complete his work with his people. And I think when we're approaching passages like this, We've got to remember to eat the main thing, the main thing. Lots of people get lost in trying to work out, what the seven sevens mean? What does 62 sevens mean? What date does it refer to exactly in world history? Has it happened? Is it happening? Will it happen? And it can lead us to get very um, confused as to about, well, when is this going on and what's actually happening? I think a helpful way to think about this is the 77s. Do you remember Jesus is talking to his disciples? And Peter says to him, how many times should I forgive somebody? Should I forgive them seven times? And Jesus says, no, you should forgive them 77s. Now, the point isn't to go, well, 77s is 490. So once I've forgiven someone 490 times, I don't have to forgive them anymore. It's a kind of sense of a completeness, an ongoing, a fulfillment. So we mustn't get hung up on the numbers that are being described here. As I've read commentaries this week, what's true to say is that no single commentator agrees on exactly the events that are being described here in world history. Some say it's already been fulfilled. Some say they will come in history, history to come. Please don't get fixated on the when, but get fixed on the what is happening here. That's my plea as we look through this passage here. You see, Daniel is mostly interested in understanding the meaning rather than working out the timing of it. But what's happening here is that in verse 24, the angel Gabriel is saying that my program for your people, Daniel, will occur over a time frame. Heaven has appointed a time frame to usher in the things that are described in verse 24 an end to transgression an end to sin atoning for iniquity bringing in an everlasting righteousness sealing vision and prophecy and anointing a most holy place most of these will only fully come to pass when Jesus returns and finally establishes and consummates his kingdom and so we know that what he says is at the end my program involves Establishing these six things, these six clauses will happen at the end of time. And it's going to take place in these time horizons, these time frames. And my approach to this is this, and commentators will disagree with this. Some will agree, you may have a different view on it. This is how I read what's happening here. The events are going to occur in three distinct stages. During the first seven sevens, the first period, God will rebuild and restore the temple in Jerusalem. We know that happened in world history. Then after a period of 62 sevens, after the temple has been restored and rebuilt, there'll be a time of trouble until an anointed one comes. Surely a reference to Jesus, who is cut off and shall have nothing. That is a reference to the death of Jesus Christ, I believe. So the end of this seven sevens and this 62 sevens, Jesus comes and he is cut off and he shall have nothing. After this, it says that the temple will be destroyed, which many of you might know is a reference to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70 by Titus, the ruler of Rome at that point. The temple is destroyed, at which point we enter, the Bible describes these last seven days, the last seven sevens, where there'll be trials and tribulation until one day Jesus returns and consummates and completes his kingdom. And all the things that are described in verse 24, the end of transgression, the everlasting righteousness, will fully come into being. The point here is he's letting him into this vision. say, my program for your people, Daniel, isn't just about 70 years of exile. It's about what I'm doing in establishing everlasting righteousness and ending sin and ending transgression and paying the penalty for sin. And he says it's going to happen through these series of events. But don't get fixated on exactly what is happening there. Get fixated on the big picture that God's trying to communicate here, that he is doing something far bigger, and he's establishing his kingdom, and one day it will come fully to pass when Jesus Christ returns. That's the main message that is being conveyed here, that we're to hold on and to have hope and to stand firm, because Jesus Christ is returning, and because heaven has appointed a timeline for the clauses in verse 24 to be enacted, that everlasting righteousness will come. That what we see in the world today of injustices and wars will come to an end one day. That's the promise of the Bible. That's the message that's going on here, that God's establishing his kingdom, and, and there's a program, there's a timeline at which these things will fully come to pass. And I recognize that in 10 minutes, it's like, what? how do we understand these things? And I've just rushed through these things. And I take, encourage you to take some time. I can give you some resources if you want to, to try and understand more of what's going on here. But the point, the big picture is God is establishing his kingdom. That is the message of Daniel in all its fullness anyway, that God is establishing his reign and his rule, and he will bring an end to sin, and he will bring an end to injustice, and he will establish righteousness. But really, for us today... So what? What does that look like? What does that, how should that affect how we come to God? How should that affect how we view life, how we, how we approach things in life? And there are so many things in here, but what I just want to do is I want to pick three particular things from this passage that I think will help us invigorate our prayer life as we come to God. I, I believe that each one of us, if you, know Lord, if you know the Lord Jesus this morning, is hungry to see more of the kingdom of God breaking out in your own life, and in the lives of the people around you, and you long to see more answer to prayer than you see right now in your life. That's my heart. I, I'm like, God, I see a bit, but I want more. And I think there's much in this passage that should give us confidence and assurance and should invigorate our prayer life, both individually, for our families, for, for our communities, and for the nations of the world. As we come together and pray, in, by yourself, or if you're married with your husband or your wife, or you're praying with your family, or, or we're praying in a prayer meeting together, it should actually lift us. We go, oh, wow, this is what's going on. And it should therefore ignite and invigorate our prayer life toward God. I'm convinced that many of us want to see more in prayer, but we kind of, what? To what end are we praying? Why? What's going on? And what's happening? I just want to bring three things, really, I hope will serve us well and help us as we go forward from today. The first one is this, know that the outcome is secure. Daniel's vision of the 77s must shape how we pray because we know and God has spoken of what is to come in world history. We know the outcome of world history. We know the final destiny. We know that God will accomplish his purposes and he will atone for sin and he'll bring in everlasting righteousness and he's returning one day and that his kingdom has been and is being and will be fully established. And therefore the outcome is secure and that should affect how we approach God. And you see, knowing that the outcome is secure should do many things as we come toward him. Knowing the outcome is secure means in the storms of life, we can hold firm. Believer, this morning, you may be in a storm of life, or one day you will face a storm of life because that is the reality of life, this side of eternity. There will be trials and tribulations. Knowing that the outcome is secure Knowing that Jesus is establishing his kingdom and that that his righteousness will will, will come to pass and he will return one day and he will fully bring into about everything means that when we face trials and tribulations, we can hold firm and hold fast. This kind of literature in Daniel or the book of Revelation, a lot of it is written, it's called apocalyptic literature, a lot of it is written to encourage those in faith to stand firm and to hold fast. A lot of it isn't to try and go, well, when's this going to happen and what's going to happen? The book of Revelation is primarily to say, Christians, hold firm and hold fast. When strife comes, when trials come, when tribulations come, hold firm. Hebrews said, hold fast to your confession of faith. Paul writes to Timothy, stand firm, fight the good fight, run the good race. Hebrews 6 also says this, we have this hope as an anchor for our soul. As we face trials and tribulations gateway, believer in Jesus, face them knowing that the outcome is secure, that Jesus will in, is and will indeed establish all the things that he set out to do, and his kingdom is coming, and it will come in all its fullness. It gives us this big picture outlook of what's happening in world history as we, as we face challenges and storms. It's an encouragement to say, hold firm and hold fast. And also what it should do when we know the outcome is secure, it should give us perseverance in prayer. Jesus loves it when we persevere in prayer. It should give us perseverance. You know, the the reality is in a culture like ours, which is instant, 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 we're not often thrilled by the call to continually pray and to persevere in something. The call to obedience and endurance is a tough one particularly in Western culture, where we're growing up in a a rapid information age, where everything answered immediately. I want petrol, I pay at the pump. I don't even have to bother going in anymore, which I don't do very often because I hate it. It's a funny conversation in our family. But the point is, everything is instant, and now, and now, and the Bible says, no, I'm establishing something, but it's going to take a period of time. Therefore, hold on and endure and persevere. And do you know what this as well? Knowing the outcome is secure should create an immovable certainty and assurance in the life of a believer. God is establishing his reign and rule. It will come to pass. There is a day coming. Heaven has appointed a timeline. Therefore, it gives assurance and certainty as we approach our heavenly father. And what it also will do, finally, just before we move on to the second point, is this. It must drive us to pray in earnestly. It must drive us to say, God, bring your kingdom quickly. Hasten the day of your coming. Knowing that it's going to happen one day should cause us to go, God, I cry out to you. Let your kingdom come. Thy kingdom come in my life, in my family's life, in my, in my children's life, in this community's life, in, this, in Swindon's life. Now, in 2017, let your kingdom come quickly. Usher it in, Lord usher in righteousness now. It should give us a hunger and it should birth a a desire to pray in earnest as we know that the outcome is secure. The point of this 77s isn't to get caught up in the what exactly or the when or the how's it going to happen. It's to go, it's going to happen and therefore we can hold firm and hold fast to the confession of faith. That's it. That's the first one. Know that the outcome is secure and let it affect how you pray. Let it affect how you hold firm and hold fast. The second thing is this. Verse 23 says this. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. The second point is this. Believer, you are highly esteemed. The word that is being used here is a, is a word called Hamudot. That's a terrible probably pronunciation. I hope there's nobody who can read Aramaic or Hebrew in the room. But what the word literally means is greatly loved, greatly precious, highly desired, coveted, highly esteemed. Daniel, as he comes to God, what relief and what promise that as Daniel comes to God and pleads for his people, God looks at him and says, Daniel, you are highly esteemed you are greatly loved. You are desired. You are, you are, your identity is one who is greatly and magnificently loved. This is how God sees you, Daniel. This is how God sees you. As you come to him and petition him and cry out for your people, God says, you are greatly loved. This is how God sees you, Daniel, as he comes to God. This is how God sees you. I don't think that must have been so welcome for Daniel as he's crying out to God for his people and the assurance the word comes back from heaven that says, as soon as you started praying, a word went out because, Daniel, you are greatly loved. Doesn't that just solidify and give us a rock-solid assurance in faith? Believer, you are greatly loved this morning. You are the apple of God's eye, the Bible says. You are highly esteemed. I don't know what you think of yourself this morning. I don't know whether you view yourself as too highly above God or whether you view yourself somewhere down here, but the Bible says you are greatly loved by your heavenly Father. Can I get an amen to that? We are greatly loved people. I don't want this to be up here today. I want this to dwell deeply in our hearts this morning. You are greatly loved. Thanks, Jackie. It's very kind. I don't want to rush on. The reality is we are growing in a culture, particularly Western culture, where there is an identity crisis. People are growing up. Children are growing up. Our young people are growing up. They don't know who they are. There's a crisis of identity. And the message of the Bible is, come to Jesus because you are greatly loved. And maybe you're here this morning and you're going, I've never never met Jesus before. And I'm, I'm searching, where do I find identity? Who am I really? And Jesus says, come to me today because you're greatly loved. Or maybe you're here this morning, you know Jesus and you've walked with him for many years, but but underlyingly in your heart, you're like, does God really love me? This morning when I came to Gateway, and do you know what I'm really like at home? Or do you know what I'm really like at work? Or do you know what I'm really like with my kids? Do you know what? I get very angry with my children sometimes. That's a reality. But do you know what? God looks at me and he still says you're greatly loved, Al, even when you're angry with your children. And of course, I want to change. Of course, I don't want to be the same tomorrow as I was yesterday or I am today. But you know what God looks at me? He doesn't say, well, I'm going to cast you out. He says, you're greatly loved, Al. You're greatly loved. I don't, well, no matter how you came to Gateway this morning, or what you were feeling, the message is you are greatly loved, people of God. Your identity is you are loved. And whether you feel like it or not, I want, to, I want to pray. And we're going to pray for people a bit later That if, you, if you're here this morning, you're like, do you know what, I don't feel like one who is greatly loved. I want to pray that God would do something and he would put a rock-solid assurance in your innermost person that your identity is secure in him. Many of us do not know who we are, and it causes us to wibble and wobble when we pray because we're not sure our position as we approach God. And he says, you're welcome. You're invited in. You're greatly loved. Doesn't that, doesn't that give us an assurance and a confidence that as we come to God, as we plead to Him, He doesn't go. He's not a harsh Father. He says, "You're approaching One. You're greatly loved. You're greatly loved." We're going to come back to that when we pray, a bit later. I just want to read before we move on. Ephesians one. There's so many verses about identity and who we are. But I just want to read. This is what the Bible says about you believer this morning. Ephesians 1 verse 5, in love he predestined or chose us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Verse um, 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, in him you who, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Believe it this morning, your identity is one who is loved, redeemed, has an inheritance, and has been sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. That should give us a rock-solid assurance like Daniel as we cry out to him, as we cry out to God. So knowing your identity is key, knowing the outcome is secure is a key part. And the last thing is this I want to pick up on, which is again from verse 23, which is this. As we cry out to God... Heaven hears the cries of our hearts, and heaven answers the cries of our hearts. Verse 23 says this, as soon as you began to pray, a word went out. I want to navigate here carefully so we don't get confused, but the point is this. This passage gives us an assurance and a confidence that as soon as we cry out to him, it says a word went out because you're greatly loved. Heaven hears the cries of your heart. As we cry out to him and plead, whatever circumstance it is you're in, know that heaven hears the cries of your heart. God is not some far off, distant, uninterested God. He's a good and loving father that he hears the cries of our hearts. Exodus 3, his people are in distress. And what does God say? I've heard the cries of my people. Two kings, 20, Hezekiah is ill and in bed and sick. And he cries out to God and he says, I've heard your cries, Hezekiah. God is not distant and far off and deaf to the cries of our hearts. Okay, he hears the cries of our hearts. He hears them. Okay, we know that. We cry out to him in personal circumstances for the extension of his kingdom, for our family, for our friends. We can be confident and assured that God hears the cries of our hearts. Again, it's an identity thing. There's a sense of he hears us, gateway. And the thing is, as well as, well as hearing our prayers, God also answers our prayers. Charles Spurgeon once said, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the mighty hand of God. Now, as I said, I want to be careful here, but the Bible makes it very clear. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Ask and you will receive. Heaven does answer prayer. Prayer is a powerful weapon that we have been given. Heaven answers prayer. And in this case, the answer to Daniel's prayer was yes, Jerusalem will be restored and rebuilt. But the point of verse 24 and verse 27 is also this. Heaven hears, some prayers may get answered immediately. Some may only get answered in the context of this 77s and God's kingdom being established and his righteousness being established over the whole events of world history. Some things will come to pass now. Some things will only come to pass at the end of time when God's kingdom is consummated and ushered in Fully. And that gives us confidence and that that helps us to not get confused as to go, I'm crying out for this, God, it's not happening, why not? And he says, well, sometimes things get her answered immediately and sometimes things only get answered in the context of the final ushering in of my kingdom at the end of these 77s. And what the response should be, therefore, I'm going to cry out to God, cry out to him, cry out to him, knowing that he hears the cries of my heart, knowing that he does answer. The answer isn't always when or how I expect it to be, but knowing that heaven does indeed hear the cries of our hearts. As we we pray, I believe that we're to have more expectation of God's kingdom breaking out. We're to expect his kingdom to break out increasingly, but in the midst of this, we're also to know that the final fulfillment or consummation or perfection or full ushering in of his kingdom will only come to pass at the end of these 77s when he finally ushers in the final end of transgression and sin and everlasting righteousness is brought in. Therefore, we cry out for social injustices and we say, God, let your kingdom come. But we know that everlasting righteousness may not come until the end. We cry out in the midst of trials and tribulations and say, God, would you release me from this suffering and this trial, knowing that heaven does hear the cry of your heart and that you're greatly loved, but also knowing that some answers may not come until the end of the 77s, until the end when Jesus' kingdom is finally ushered in. We cry out to God for peace in this nation and peace in Burundi, knowing that God will move and hear the cries of our hearts and will answer, but equally that everlasting righteousness may not be established in Burundi until the end of the 77s. It gives us this confidence and this assurance gateway. I just want to reiterate these points as we land to a close this morning. Can, guys, could can you come up and get um, ready just to lead us if that's okay you have. Sorry about the mess, everyone. Mind the water. Can I just invite you? I'm um, just to stand, if that's okay. I just want to just want to reiterate this this morning, believer you are greatly loved. You are greatly and highly precious and highly esteemed. Highly esteemed. And whatever it is going on in your life right now, whatever it is you're crying out to God for, heaven hears the cries of your heart. And a word goes out from heaven. That doesn't mean everything's get answered in the way you might think right now, but it means that God hears the cries of your heart. And that we're to continue to go to him and to cry out to him, knowing that the outcome is secure. And that will produce in us perseverance. And it will produce faithfulness. And it will produce love. And it will produce the things that God says, so hold firm and hold fast. If right now you're in a trial this morning, my, my cry to you is hold firm and hold fast to your confession of faith this morning. Fight the good fight of faith. Run this race with perseverance, knowing that your heavenly father loves you and that he's for you. These guys are just going to lead us in a song of worship, and then we're going to come. We're going to pray for some people. We're going to take communion together, and there's some specific things i love us to pray for, um, but let these guys lead us in, in a song of worship first, and then we're going to go off the back of that.